and welcome to the Money Mountaineering Show hosted by actuary Peter Newarth, FSA, FCA, who asked the question, what's your future worth? Of course, these are the titles of Pete's fascinating books. It's a pleasure to produce his show on the Incandescent Radio Network and Incandescent TV. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs. And what it is a treat tonight to bring you episode seven of his show starring best-selling author Annie Duke. Her new book is Quit. The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. It was released in October 2022 from Portfolio, which is a Penguin Random House imprint. For two decades, Annie was one of the top poker players in the world. In 2004, she bested a field of 234 players to win her first World Series of Poker bracelet. The same year, she triumphed as the $2 million winner, Take All Invitation Only, WSOP Tournament of Champions. And in 2010, she won the prestigious NBC National Heads Up Poker Championship. She retired in 2012, and the rest is history. We are so excited to have you here. Annie, take it away, Pete. Well, thanks a lot, Hope. And, and Annie, it's so great to see you. I mean, and we've had, you know, we've had a few conversations over the last few months and maybe a couple of years, and, and you were kind enough to write the forward to my book, and I really, really appreciate that. So you've written a great book that I really want to talk about, and um, but I actually want to start out by just asking you, because my father taught me chess and I'm a chess player. Oh, you're, okay. you're, 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 you're a poker player. And he always told me that resign is the weakest move, but I guess you disagree. And um, I'd love to hear why you think my father was wrong and what you've written about. So resign is not the weakest move in a situation where the writing is on the wall, right? So we have to think about um, even in a game like chess and even however long the extra moves are uh, to actually end up having the fit accompli happen, right? Which is that you end up in checkmate. We need to think of our time, attention, resources, like effort, money. Right. Uh, you know, we have to recognize that those are limited resources. And we want to be spending those resources on on endeavors that are worthwhile and not be spending them on endeavors that aren't worthwhile. So when we think about resigning, when does somebody resign? When they can see that the checkmate is there, right? So it doesn't matter whether you're actually in checkmate or not. If you can see that the path forward is checkmate, wouldn't you rather resign and then spend the time starting a new game? And I think that it's such a great analogy for how we might think about how we allocate our attention and effort and time and money to the variety of things that we might do in our own lives. There's plenty of things that we do where check we can see the checkmate on the horizon. And we ought not to continue until you're actually in checkmate before we're willing to walk away and go on to something that's actually going to cause us to gain more ground toward the goals that we're trying to achieve. Yeah. And I guess, and I guess there's a lot of psychological barriers that get in the way of uh, seeing that the, that there's writing on the wall. And um I mean, that's the wonderful thing about your book is you talk about so many of those uh, those things. And among my favorites is the endowment effect. One of the uh, stories in your in your book that I really, really related to was the uh, the one about uh, Wilkinson, the, the guy yeah. who invented flow and and because his product was good and it was better than the competition. And why didn't that work? And why should he have quit sooner than he did? So there's a lot of cognitive and 
biases and motivational forces that make stopping things hard. It was one of the really fun things about writing this book is that I had certain things in mind, Mm -hmm. uh, but as I delved deeper into the topic, I saw like, you know, when we talk about the deck is stacked against you, I saw that the deck was much bigger than I thought that was um, stacked against you. And we can kind of like think about at least on the cognitive side that there are two different uh, things that will cause us sort of two different types of errors that we make that cause us to not stop. One error has to do with the sort of retrospective wanting to get resources back or wanting to get our money back or feeling like our time is wasted if we walk away. So that's one category. Um, The endowment effect actually falls into a different category, which is a forecasting problem. Um, So as we're thinking about any decision that we want to make and whether we should continue to pursue something, in deciding whether to pursue it, we're thinking about, is this thing that I'm doing worthwhile? So there's a variety of biases that can cause us to overestimate how worthwhile it is to continue what we're doing. One of those would be classic like over-optimism, right? So if we have optimism bias, we're going to overestimate our chances of success. And obviously that's going to create a bad forecast that is going to cause us to uh, stick to things that aren't worthwhile because we actually mistakenly think that they are. The endowment effect, which you just mentioned, uh, is another one of those things that can cause this error in forecasting. Uh, So just for people who don't know what the endowment effect is, it's essentially that when we are valuing something that we own, we will value it more highly than an identical thing that we don't own. So the classic one actually is a great story that comes from Kahneman and Thaler and Jack Netsch, two of which are Nobel laureates, obviously, where they were talking about an economist friend of theirs that they had, who in the 1950s started collecting like fine bottles of Bordeaux. And, you know, he was buying the bottles at the time for like, you know, $5. And then, uh, you know, starting in the 60s, the market for Bordeaux was really like booming. And these bottles that he had bought for like between five and $30 where you could get like a hundred to $200 for them. So they asked him, why don't you sell some of these bottles at auction? Um, And his response was, no, I don't want to do that because I won't get what they're worth. Right. So he was saying that they would be underpriced if he sold them at auction. So of course the logical question is, why don't you buy more at auction? And he said, no, because I'm, I would pay too much. Okay, so here we can see exactly the problem, right, which is that uh, he's valuing the bottles in his possession more highly than he's valuing the bottles that would not be in his possession. Of course, the value of those bottles should be identical. And what they meant was that uh, he wasn't, let's say, quitting ownership of the bottles, right? So uh, he wasn't selling the bottles. So this brings us to Andrew Wilkinson. So we can think about not just like an object we own, like do we think a car that we have is worth more than the exact same model that somebody else has? Yes. So that's kind of classic endowment. But we can also think about like our ideas, like things that we've created. uh, And we have ownership over those things too. So it's not just stuff. It's also beliefs and ideas. So in Andrew Wilkinson's case, he was in some ways a serial entrepreneur. He actually had a company that also funded um, enterprises. And he was a huge like to-do list fanatic. And he developed a product called Flow, uh, which was a SaaS tool, a software as a service tool, just software tool that would help people with to-do lists. Okay, so he's developing this product. He loves it. He thinks it's really, really beautiful. 
and he's bootstrapping it. So he hasn't gotten venture money. He's actually using his own capital. He was very successful uh, businessman, entrepreneur, uh, funder, angel investor, that kind of thing. And so he loves it. He's funding it with his own money. So this is creating like tremendous ownership over this product. Well, it turned out that Dustin, Dustin Moskowitz, formerly of Facebook, was also creating a to-do list product that was called Asana. Um, and initially, like he was a little worried because Moskowitz is a big name. He's got a lot of money. Uh, Asana is venture backed, whereas he's bootstrapping his product. Um, but he sees the initial version of Asana and he's very relieved because it's like very ugly and it's clunky and his tool is beautiful and amazing. And he just knows it's a better tool. Right. So he right. goes and has a, uh, Moskowitz actually asked him to have a meeting. Moskowitz telling is that um, he was trying to see if there was some way that either they could merge or that Asana, because it was venture backed, would be willing to acquire Flow. Wilkinson's interpretation of the meeting was different as sort of a threat, like kind of a we're going to eat you alive kind of conversation. Uh, but the fact was that basically what Moskowitz was saying was we have a lot of funding. We have lots and lots of money. Probably that's going to give us a competitive advantage over you bootstrapping. Why don't we join forces, right, and try to defeat the you know big players um, in the world? But but obviously that conversation didn't go well because they heard it differently. Well, Moskowitz goes off. They they continue to develop Asana. They obviously have a lot of capital, and of course Asana ends up passing Flow in terms of uh, its you know usefulness, like what its functionality is, you know its UX that kind of stuff. But Wilkinson still refuses, absolutely refuses to stop developing flow because he thinks it's amazing. Eventually, even though the writing is on the wall very early, probably back when this meeting occurred, he ends up putting, I think, $11 million of his own money in. So this is coming from endowment. He owns his product. He thinks it's better than Asana. He values it more than Asana. He won't allow Asana to acquire him he won't allow a merger because he doesn't feel like he's going to get what the product is worth because he believes it's worth more than it actually is. Right. And this creates an error that causes him to lose a lot of money. I don't right. know how much he had in it at the time that Moskowitz talked to him. It was probably very low seven figures, but he ends up with a you know 11 million. He gets into the eight figures in terms of what he's put into it um, before right. it eventually it sort of dies a slow death. You know, isn't there something else going on there, too, that Wilkinson believed he was right and he just wouldn't see the information that was out there? And maybe he had tunnel vision and and so many. I mean, I find myself if I if I think I'm right, that's very, very hard to convince me that I'm not um, and I'm not and I'm a little bit immune to the to this information. So it seems like. There's information out there that we don't use when we decide we're right or on a path. And how do we get access to that information? How do we open our eyes to that information that's not obvious? So I think you've hit on something really central, kind of the crux of the matter, which is, so we have the intuition. So when we think about, let me just back up. When we're thinking about decision-making under uncertainty, right? I have to choose to start things. So I have to choose to develop flow. I have to choose to start up Mount Everest. I have to choose to take a job or to hire an employee. Um, So we can think about the variety of things that we have to choose to start. 
And when we choose to start those things, we're starting them under conditions of uncertainty. And we can think about, you know, both there's going to be an influence of luck on the way it turns out. And sometimes, you know, maybe it's not going to work out 5% of the time, but you live the 5%. It's going to happen 5% of the time by definition. Uh, And then oftentimes it's also like we're having to make those decisions when we aren't omniscient. We don't know everything that there is to be known. And we've all had that feeling of, I wish I knew then what I know now. I would have made a different choice. And that sort of, we can feel sort of the uncertainty of the starting really uh, exposing itself in those moments where we say, oh, I learned new stuff. If I had known it, I would have done something different. Okay. But it's the human condition that we have to start things when we don't have all the facts. We have to start things knowing that luck could go our way or not go our way. The beauty of this option to quit is that it's what allows us to deal with that new information when we find out that things aren't going our way. When we say, look, I thought when I started this, it would be worth it. But now standing where I am now, I realize that the path forward is no longer worth it. So I can walk away. Okay. So your intuition here, what you're getting at is that we believe that when that information comes our way, that, that we'll stop. That's our intuition, right? Like, okay, I start something. I'm starting up Mount Everest. Obviously, if there's a huge blizzard, I'm going to turn around. If a really heavy fog rolls in and I have no visibility, I'm clearly not going to continue up the mountain. If I take this job and it turns out like it's a really bad cultural fit for me, or I have a toxic boss, or, you know, there's like a megalomaniacal CEO who's a micromanager that I can't deal with or whatever, that I'm obviously going to leave that situation. So this is how we feel. Or if we're Andrew Wilkinson, you know, look, when the product starts stops making money and I've got all this money into it and my competitor is growing leaps and bounds and capturing the whole market, clearly I'm going to stop. So that's what we believe. But what Barry Staw, who's uh, really has done tremendous seminal research starting back in the 70s on this problem, what his central insight was, was that no, we don't. We're really good at ignoring those signals once we start. And it's not necessarily just because we're so confident that we're right, although that can be part of the problem. It's Mm -hmm. the starting itself. It's the fact that we are already in it and have started. And what that means is that we have put time into it. We have put attention into it. We have put effort into it. We have put money into it. These become very simple sunk cost problems, right? That right. if we walk away, we what will that be for? Like that, it won't be worth it. And then we also have issues of identity, right? If I'm creating this product like Flow and my name is associated with it, then what does that mean for who I am? What right. my consistency, the way that other people are going to view me, the way that I'm going to view myself if I walk away from that. And then sometimes it's simply overconfidence, right? That like, if I believe I'm right, nothing's going to tell me I'm wrong. So that's certainly part of the problem. But a lot of times it isn't even that simple because we don't even know what's going on, mm-hmm. right? We don't we don't understand these influences of like sunk cost and internal and external validity or even endowment that mm-hmm. might make it so easy for us to ignore the blizzard and keep going up Everest even so. Isn't it sometimes though, just the information itself that you gather is ambiguous or it's noisy, or maybe it's, you don't believe it because perhaps somebody's lying to you. So isn't that also a problem these days in trying to figure out incomplete, I guess incomplete information comes in lots of different flavors, it seems. Yeah. So, so let's just say, first of all, 
when we start things, we're willing to start things with very little knowledge. The problem is that once we stop, you know, to get us to stop, basically, you know, I think Richard Thaler said, sorry, Richard Thaler said this, you know, I like to repeat things that Nobel laureate said, but I think this is deeply insightful that most of the time we won't quit until it's no longer a choice. So, so to your point, of course, look, when you're making a decision to quit, there's going to be uncertainty. There's going to be ambiguity in the sense of what your dad said, right? At the point that you resign, is it a hundred percent certain that you're going to get checkmated? I suppose right. not. The person could have a stroke, right? Maybe they just make like a humongous blunder and somehow you end up winning. But the point to stop is when you figure out the expected value isn't there, meaning that the return on an investment is no longer there. And obviously that's always going to be a forecast. If you wait until you have hundred percent certainty before you're willing to walk away, you're already in checkmate. You've already fallen into the crevasse, right? You know, you're already dead on the side of Everest, right? You've right. wasted five years in a dead end job where you're never going to get promoted and you have no chance of career investment, or you've blown through all your stop losses in a stock that you own until the stock has gone to zero. Well, sure. Then you know that you shouldn't own it. So right. we want to be better at saying, look, these signals are always ambiguous, but the problem is that part of that ambiguity leaves us the ability to rationalize them away. So we can think about really old work. Mm -hmm. So this is going to move out a little bit of cognitive science into more behavioral science of Leon Festinger. And I think that this shows the ability that we have to take signals that even aren't ambiguous and really work them to be able to maintain our beliefs. So his original work was on something called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is basically just when the world comes in conflicts with, with your beliefs. Yep. That's what it is. Yep. So we believe certain things. The world says your belief is not true. What do we do with that? Right. right. And right. what he discovered was very surprising, which is we protect our beliefs. That's the way that we generally re- will resolve the dissonance is we reject the information. So his original work was with uh, a cult actually called the seekers. This was in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and the seekers believe there was this uh, uh, woman, Marion Keach, who uh, was speaking to aliens from the planet Clarion, who were telling her that, uh, you know, that we were all doomed, like humanity was so evil, and that the these aliens were going to come and wipe out all of humanity in a flood. And they told her the date, I think it was December 20th of 1954. Right. So so she had a date um, and she recruited, you know, some believers um, into the cult who obviously gave away all their worldly goods and, you know, things that people do in a cult because they really believed that these aliens were going to come wipe out humanity. But here was the deal that if you were a true believer, if you were part of the seekers, that the aliens were going to rescue you. So right. all of humanity was going to be wiped out, but you were going to get taken away in the spaceship. Right. Right. So Festinger was really interested in this because here's a case where, by definition, a doomsday cult has an exact date. That's the whole point, right? Like, here's the day of doom. And what he wanted to know was what happens when that day comes and there's no flood and no aliens. So this is not ambiguous. Right, Right, right. So he infiltrated the cult with some researchers and he was there on the night that it happened. And you know what? The cult didn't disband. Uh-huh. And it was worse than that. And this is was Barry Stahl's, uh revelation from this. 
is that it's not only that it didn't, didn't disband, it's not only that they continued on with the cult, it's that they escalated their commitment to so it. They, they, they actually they, believed in it even more strongly. And the way that they rationalized it away was our belief saved humanity. That so, is what uh, they then believed. That's really, really compelling. You, you mentioned ex- expected value. And of course, expected value is, is near and dear to my heart as an actuary. And I'm trying to make all decisions based on expected value. And I thought there was a fascinating mention, in, and I think it was one of the summary chapters where you said, if, um, if you do an expected value calculation and it's close, you, you're, more, you like, you're more likely should be quitting. And when I saw that, I said, okay, it's, I guess it's, it's all these biases and, and, and psychological facts that weigh that. But what about the value of the quit option? Because it's a one-way option and you can't unquit by and large. So doesn't that option to quit have some value that should play in that expected value calculation? It should if we were objective. Right. So I totally agree with you. If I were objective and I could calculate expected value, I would take into account the option value. Right. There's no question. Right. Right. So uh, if I felt it was close, I would examine uh, the expected value of the other routes that I could take. And um, having the option to quit obviously would be included for me in that in that expected value. Right. Being able to preserve the option value. The problem is that that when we're calculating that expected value, uh, we're not objective. Um, and so this is where the, the issue comes in. So this is actually um, some wonderful work from Stephen Levitt. Kind of really shows this problem. That's the, he's uh, the Freakonomics guy? Is the Freakonomics the... guy. That's exactly right. Yeah. So basically, he had he put up a website. He was really fascinated. He and Stephen Dubner have just been very fascinated by the topic of quitting. So he put up a website where people could go and say, I'm not, I, I'm trying to decide whether I should quit my job or not, or I'm trying to decide whether I should break up with my partner or not, or whatever, right? So uh, should I sell this big investment or not? So they they go there and they can sort of input what their decision is. And then there's a virtual coin flip. And the virtual coin flip is like, heads you quit, tails you stay. Okay, so like 20,000 people went and did this. Mm-hmm. Now, what he does is he says, he has, before you flip, he says, how happy are you today? Mm-hmm. And then he checks back in with them two months later and six months later. All right. So uh, let's just sort of, if we can, just sort of stipulate something. Right. If you are willing to flip a coin, which is 50-50, right. to decide whether you should stick or quit, can we agree that your perception is that it is a very close call? Right. Because right. if it weren't a close call, you would either just stay or you would go. Right. So right. you have to believe that it's so close that flipping a coin is a totally fine thing to do here. Right. Okay. So right. we can stipulate that. Right? right. Okay. So then what we ought to stipulate also is that if it's truly a close call, then what we would expect is that half of the quitters would be happier and half would be sadder and half right. of the stickers would be happier and half would be sadder. Because it's a close call. It's 50-50. So it's, well, it could go either way, right? All right. So we've got those two things stipulated. That is not what he found. <laughs> what he found is that the quitters were happier. Right. So, okay, so what that so- tells you is that it wasn't a close call. Right. So at the point that they ex- were experiencing it as a 50-50, yeah. 
right. it was so far beyond a 50-50 because quitting was very clearly the right choice. And right. that's the problem that we're getting at. Look, if I knew yes. that I was being objective, yes. then yes, I would take into account the option value. If right. it was close, I would look at what my other options were. Was right. there something that clearly had a higher expected value where I was willing to give up the option value and go switch to that? Sure, I would consider all that stuff. But what Levitt's work tells you is that we're not objective, that we get to that decision too late, that when we experience it a close call, it is not in any way a close call. Right. Well, I love that because you've got statistical evidence for, for the for the statement, which which is, again, <laughs> music to my I try. Ears. I try. I try to I try to be science backed around so, here. I try, try not so to we, just intuit. We don't have a, a lot of extra time, but I do want to get to one of the questions that is you know, my audience is always, is very central to, to, to the people I talk to, which is the decision to stop working and retire. Because that that is a fundamental quit decision. And it's one of those things that, you know, I guess there's this thing, well, I'll, I'll quit when I have, when, when I hit my number, you know, when I get, when I get enough to retire, but that number just keeps Nobody getting actually bigger does and that. bigger and you never retire. <laughs> no one so, does that. <laughs> so what what do you say what what do you say to the people that are you know in their 50s and thinking maybe I should well, I'm getting tired maybe there's how do you how do you approach that that quick decision Yeah so this so let me just say first of all there, there's something that I did not discuss in my book cuz just there's only so many things that you can discuss which is there is a time element to quitting So what we can think about is that as we get closer to the end of a series you should be more sticky. Yes. Okay. So um, so the example would be, uh, if, let's say you go on a vacation and it's a seven-day vacation, so seven nights. So you're going to have seven dinners. Uh, for the first six nights, it totally makes sense to go sample different restaurants. But on the seventh night, you should go back to the, the restaurant that you love the most. So you should stop exploring new options. You should actually just go back to something that you already liked. Right. Um, and and that just has to do with sort of what is, when we're thinking about what the value of continuing to explore is and how much risk you want to take on. And that as you get closer to the end of a series, you should just be more sticky and you should sort of the best option should be what you kind of stick with. This translates to the, you know, sort of quitting jobs and things like that, which is that the closer to the end of the your career you are, the more likely you should just stay in the job that you're in. You have to cut, you know, you have to, at some point you have to say that's enough. Well, I'm going to, I'm getting to that, but I just want to point this yeah, out. Yeah. So I yeah. think that part of the reason why when people are older, they're feeling that pressure of not wanting to walk away is that they're feeling that there's may not be another option out there for them. Um, and so that's causing them to stick, which in some ways is rational just because of this issue of you should stick with something that you already know as you're toward the end of a series. But at some point you do actually have to stop. Um, the way that we can actually think about this is the same as how do we kind of create commitment around stopping in general, and we can apply this to retirement. So first of all, you should always explore, is it really actually something where if I quit, I can't go back? Right. And so I think that people forget that, right? So right. Um, if I quit, can I go back to work if I decide that I don't like it? And if the answer to that is yes, you should be more quitty. Right. Because right? we know that we can go back to work. It may not be back to the exact same job, but I could go back to work. So example, like, look, if I'm a gray hair um, and I quit my job and then it turns out I don't like being retired, no doubt I can become a coach to somebody. 
Right. Right. I could be a consultant. I can do something that's going to allow me to work. Maybe I can volunteer if that's something that I'm just looking for my time with. So you should always be thinking about those other options. That's piece number one. Piece number two is that we don't like ambiguity. Uh, And so we don't like ambiguity and we suffer from something called omission commission bias, which is related to status quo bias. So status quo bias is a preference for the thing that you're already doing. And where how omission commission bias relates to this is that we think about the downside of something more. It gets recruited more heavily into decisions that are yeah. called commissions, cho- mm-hmm. choices to change the state of the world, right. uh, than to omissions, which are choices to keep the state of the world the same. Right. So in general, the status quo is sticking with the status quo is processes an omission, right. whereas switching to something new would be processed as a commission. So loss aversion, which comes from obviously Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, it's part of prospect theory, is this, and this is true in investing, is that we overweight sort of the bad things that could come from a choice, but not when it comes to an omission. So we're very tolerant of unhappiness or being tired or sort of over it or all of those things that might come from staying in a job at a point that we're considering retiring. Whereas we're afraid, but what if I quit and I hate it and I'm sad and I'm bored and I'm lonely because I don't I don't have my work life anymore. So right. we can be in a situation where we're miserable in the work we're doing because we're like at an age where we want to spend time with our grandkids or have some time off or play more tennis or golf more or whatever. And we know we're miserable. But the fear of the the misery that we might experience from the switch actually will stop us from switching, even when there's a greater possibility of happiness from the switch than where we're sitting right now. So this is true for everybody, right? So we have to sort of remember that. So how do we sort of get out of this problem? There's two things that we want to do. One is to essentially do the exercise that I just said, and we can do it in two ways. Imagine it's a year from now and you haven't retired. You've stayed in the job that you're in. What's the probability that you're going to be happy and feel fulfilled and not feel any regret? And generally, when people are in the state that you're talking about, the answer is, I mean, low, right? Right. Like, I I know I'm going to be unhappy because that's why I'm considering this. Then you say, okay, so let's imagine you retire. What are the chances you're going to be happy doing that? And they may say, I don't know. But if you actually pin them down and you say, "Is is the number greater than, you know, zero, because you're telling me there's a 0% chance over here. Generally, they'll say, yeah, I think there's like, you know, a 40% chance or a 50% chance or a 60% chance that I'm going to be happy. And then you can just say, well, okay, is that greater than zero? And generally that will help them get there. So that's one thing that you can do. Thing number two is to say, well, what would you do with the time? So this can be very, very helpful because what it does is get them focused on the opportunity cost. And when we're talking about opportunity costs, we're talking about focusing on the upside. Because if we're thinking about the cost of not pursuing an opportunity, what we're saying is, what is the upside that you're giving up? So when we say, what would you do with the time? We're now getting them to see the upside of freeing up that time, as opposed to focusing on maybe it doesn't work out. So that's also a very helpful thing to do. What would you do with that time can help them to get to that decision faster. And then the last thing, and this is a general tool that helps us be better at quitting, is setting kill criteria. Mm -hmm. So um, basically... What we see people do is like, I'm thinking about retiring. Okay, well, are you going to retire? I don't know. I'm thinking about it and I'm not ready to make a decision yet, but I'm pretty unhappy. 
So then you see them in six months. Hey, how's that going? I heard that you were thinking about retiring. Yeah, but I'm not ready to make a decision yet. I'm pretty unhappy. And they'll rinse and repeat that partly because of the tomorrow is always tomorrow problem. Right. What we want to do is short circuit that and create right. a deadline. So right. what I would say to someone who came to me who was thinking about retiring, I wouldn't actually try to get them to retire that day. Instead, what I do is say, okay, well, how long are you okay with the status quo? You seem pretty unhappy. You're really struggling with this decision about whether to retire. How long are you okay with being in this state? So that's the first thing that I would do. And so maybe let's say they say six months. Okay, great. So now we've set a deadline. Okay, so in six months, what's going to be the state of you and what's going to be the state of your job that tells you that this is a situation that you'd like to stay in? Okay, so we write those things down. So right. let's call those benchmarks for success, right? Right, right. I, and then we say, this is the kill criteria. What's going to be the state of you? And what's going to be the state of your work or your family or anything that's else that's involved that's going to tell you that you're un, you're still unhappy? Because you're telling me that you're unhappy today. You're considering that this isn't for you, that you want to, that you would like to walk away. What are the things that are going to tell you in six months? Imagine six months from now. And you, you're really sure that you want to walk away. You want to retire. What does the world look like? What do you look like? So we write those things down. So well, those are our kill criteria. Well, one of the one of the things is is I'm not going to have enough money, you know. And that's where, you know, the other challenge in retirement comes in is you're going to most people have to live on their money, and they've got they've got a limited amount of time and a limited amount of money, and. That's what they're spending in retirement. And the question yeah. then is, when do you stop throwing good money after bad? When do you have to adjust? And yeah. when do you have enough money? So you, you you use actually the exact same tool. So there's different ways that we can think about deadlines. So one way we can think about a deadline is that uh, I can only stand this for so long. All right. So that's one way we can think about a deadline. But another way we can think about a deadline is uh, at the point that I have the right amount of money, I will now in advance commit that that is when I will walk away. Mm -hmm. And then you say, and how do I actually get to having that amount of money? All right. So this is actually how I counsel pe uh, people on quitting their jobs. Mm -hmm. So we start with how long are you okay with it? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one deadline, right? So ideally I would have an answer in three months, but then you have, and then you say, well, what could get you to a good version of the world? So you're trying to understand what the inputs are. Then you always have to ask another question, which is how much runway do we, do you have? Okay. Right. So this is taking that same idea and applying it to someone who's 30, right? Right. How much runway do you have? So let's say they say I have enough savings that I can survive without employment for six months. So then we'll say, okay, let's now look up what the average time is that it takes to get a job in this market. Mm -hmm. So if it's, three months, then I say, okay, let's run the three month experience, experiment. You know, maybe you can create a little bit more cushion, whatever. But if it's 12 months and you have six months worth of runway, I'm going to say, I know you might be unhappy and you may make the decision that you want to walk away from this job, but you, you, you actually have to do some things first. So there's two different things that we can do. We can think about, can you reduce your expenses, but also can you stick in this job longer in right. order to save money and create more cushion so that you do have the ability to walk away. So this actually maps perfectly onto your problem. So we mm -hmm. want a twofold thing. First of all, we want to discover, are you unhappy and do you actually want to retire? So that's that first deadline. 
right? How long would you be okay in this situation, regardless of anything else? What would be a bad version of the world that would tell you that it's time to walk away from your job? So we've got that set aside. But then now we have to think about a different runway, which is if you're planning now to retire, in other words, not find another job, we have to now look at the actuarial tables, right? How long do we expect you to live? Right. We know that the amount that you're going to spend isn't linear. It's going to drop if you're not traveling and so on and so forth as you don't have expensive for your kids, whatever. We can think about long-term care, well, but we assume you'll have insurance for that, so on and so forth, right? So we figure out, right. sorry. The truth is it's variable. I mean, the, the, right. what you spend in retirement is a, is a random variable and that's, you know, that's, and, it, and it's a, it's a, it's a gnarly problem, the, de, you know, right. the decumulation problem. You're yeah. going to create a lot more early retirees with your, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. So that's basically what we're trying to think about is So if we think about how long are you expected to live? Also, you have to think about what is your risk tolerance, right? right. If you are expecting to live to 85, are you willing to risk living to 95? Right. So we have right. to understand that from you. Right. So we can sort of figure that out. And then we can look at sort of, you know, projecting from here, what's the amount of money that we think that you need? How much do you have in savings? How can we actually get there so that you can retire? So that creates a different type of deadline. Um, right. And as you, you know, you should be thinking about that somewhat early in the same way that I would want someone to think about who's quitting a job to think about that before they actually walk away so that they're set and they have time to actually roll on to the next thing. Wow. You know. Annie, this is fantastic because I think you've 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 now changed my thinking a little bit in terms of how I think about retirement. I mean, not my own retirement because oh. it's I I retired and unretired a couple times since. Um, Which, by the way, say that again because that's something that I think that people need to understand is that we think about quitting as last and final, right? But in the same way that starting something isn't last and final generally quitting something is also not last and final. So right. I think that that's another thing that we need to realize that we forget. And it puts so much pressure on the decision when you think that if I quit, that's it. Yeah. Right. Never get to go back to anything. And you just said I've retired and unretired and retired and unretired because the fact is that it isn't generally a last and final decision. Right. And it, so it's not really a one way option in all circumstances. And I think that's maybe the one of the one of the key takeaways here. Annie, Look, if I, you divorce someone, it's hard to get married to them again. Yeah. But people have done it. They do. <laughs> they do. They have done it. So <laughs> even that is not a one-way door. Right. You know, I, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up here. And I just wanted to know, I mean, it's a fantastic book. And the book is Quit. And you made quitting sound like a really good thing. Um, I hope so, because it is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, what's next for you? Are you are you working on another book or or Yeah, so I've got a few things. I've started teaching cohorts on maven.com which has been really fun. Uh -huh. So, I run classes that are uh 6 hour and a half classes plus 3 office hours with cohorts. So, oh. people get to meet each other and really teaching people generally who are uh in business. Um you know, what does a good decision process look like? Uh, how do you understand cognitive bias? How do you understand noise? And how do we think about um, uh, information and how to incorporate that into decisions? So though that's been really fun. I'm on my second co cohort right now. Um, I continue to do my consulting. I'm a special partner at First Round Capital. 
which is a seed stage venture fund. I focus on decision on decision science for them. I work with another venture fund called uh, Renegade Partners. I work with SaaS companies and founders doing executive coaching. Um, I do some coaching with PMs. I do some work in professional sports. Um, all obviously on decision making, which is super fun. I am buttoning up my my PhD. Um, so Ooh. for those who don't know, way back in the day, I did five years worth of PhD work and, and quit literally right before defending my dissertation. I got sick, um, ended up playing poker. So I actually never went back and buttoned it up. So I'm currently doing that with Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers. Phil Tetlock is best known for super forecasting, which he wrote with uh, Dan Gardner, which is a fabulous book. I really hope people um, read it. Yeah. And my dissertation work, in fact, is on forecasting and decision making. Oh, wow. To anybody. But but is is your dissertation going to be published and turned into something? Because it sounds like um, somewhat. I mean, look, it's tangential to sort of everything I do. So I'm working specifically on how do you train people to be better forecasters and how do you get that training to transfer across different domains? Right. It's um really interesting to me. Would need to be translated uh, for for most people because it is it does get a little bit wonky. Love the topic. Very excited to be buttoning that up. Annie, this has been fantastic. And and I really, really appreciate you coming on. And, and I've been, very much enjoyed the conversation. And I'm wishing you the best of luck. And I can't wait to read whatever you whatever you write. I like to read. So Well, thank you. Keep, I, keep writing. I appreciate that. Can I just give one more shout out for the Alliance for Decision Education? Sure, I would really sure. love for people to go visit that. It's a nonprofit that I co-founded. Uh, with my husband, actually. What, what, what is it again? The Alliance? the Alliance for Decision Education. You know, what we say is, look, there's been all this wonderful work that's really focusing on adult decision making, right? Mm -hmm. How are we thinking about improving the way that adults make decisions? And we're saying, why aren't we teaching this to kids, right? Like this should be in every school, K through 12. Why right. are we teaching them trigonometry? Right. What well, is that? I think trigonometry is worth learning. If you're going to be an engineer and you can learn it when you're older, why are we teaching it to middle schoolers? That's the question that we want to know. Uh, it feels like probably it would be better to teach them basic decision skills uh, so that they can make better decisions so they can decide whether they should take trigonometry uh, if they want to be, for example, an engineer or, I don't know, sail the seas without a, sec without a computer. Th then you would definitely want to know trigonometry or if you're raising a barn. But the history of trigonometry, actually, I don't know if you know this, but the history of trigonometry was specifically designed because it doesn't feel much like it has a point. And so the idea was if someone was willing to work hard enough to actually pass trigonometry, that would tell you something about their skills when we were sorting people into going to college or not. And I would say that that's sort of a bad thing to still have in the in the curriculum and teaching just basic decision skills would be much better. It's just a, we have a mission to bring decision education to every child in the world. So that's what we're trying to do. I would love people to go check that out. Well, it sounds extremely worthy, and I'm 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 going to check it out and you know get involved to the extent to the extent I have the bandwidth. And because, uh, um, like I said, pretty much everything that you've been involved with, I've I've feel is is a good thing. So thank you. Thanks so yeah. much, Annie. It's been great to see you, and I I hope to see you again real soon. Well, I hope so real soon. Maybe maybe I'll get another book out in like a year and then and then we can okay. chat again or before that. Okay. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Annie. What a great, uh, you're, you're full of amazing information. I actually work in the K-12 oh. space quite often. 
doing this work. So I'd like to continue that conversation. So Annie is the author of Quit, which Pete says is an extraordinary book by an extraordinary practical author who thinks like an actuary. And clearly that is true. So thank you to our audience. Thank you to Pete. This is Money Mountaineering with Peter Newworth. He asks, what is your future worth? I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show. We will see you all next month.